0: Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 through 17. We won't be able to finish all of this uh, these verses tonight, but uh, we're going to cover quite a bit. Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 through 17. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac and the father of Jacob. And I also forgot, for those that are listening online, we're going to cover some things tonight uh, that are, I'll just, put it nicely as I can, PG-13 and possibly R-rated but it's in the word and it's important and you'll see in a little bit why, but if you have young people that are listening right now and you're concerned about that and you might not want them to listen in and you need to move them away from the recording right now at this time, so. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz. uh, Elakim Eliakim and Eliakim the father of Azor and Azor the father of Zadok and Zadok the father of Achim and Akim the father of Eliud and Eliud the father of Eleazar and Eleazar the father of Methan and Methan the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ 14 generations." Now, I'm going to be honest with you. These sections of Scripture tend to kill us, don't they? And so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. And you see this in Genesis, you see this in, in other genealogy places, and we have a tendency sometimes to just skip over them because, oh, that's just a listing of who gave birth to who. But we need to be reminded Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Now you say, Jim, what is that? Well. All scripture is what? God breathed and useful for teaching and training and correcting and so on. Listen to me. There is, as you're about to see, because we're going to spend two, if not three weeks just in this genealogy. There is so much here that you really need to see because it's not here by accident. A lot of these names that we've just read are we're going to take some time to really look at them and see why they're here. You're going to see some of that tonight so i don't want you to just zone out and say oh that's just the genealogy part it's going to be boring actually you're going to find it's not even close to boring there's a reason why these names are listed a lot of it we won't cover tonight but there's a chunk we will now it's also very very rare for women to be mentioned in genealogies if you know anything about genealogies in the hebrew mindset the men were the important and they you know they gave birth to who and who and who and you'd rarely ever see women mentioned in genealogies But in Matthew's genealogy, only covering from Abraham to Jesus, he lists five. Five women are listed. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. You're going to see that there's Tamar, there's Rahab, there's Ruth, there's Bathsheba, and Mary. And it's going to be very interesting. as We're just going to spend our time tonight to look at these five women. Actually, we're only going to have time to cover four and to deal with... Why these women are mentioned in the genealogy when women weren't mentioned in genealogies? There's a lot for God to show us tonight. So the first one we see is in verse 3, and her name was Tamar. It says, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. All right? So if you don't know who Tamar is, it's okay. We're going to introduce you to her. Go Put a bookmark here in Matthew. Go with me to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 30, and you'll have a real good idea who Tamar is by the end of this story here. Genesis 38, starting in verse 1. It says, It happened at the time that Judah, remember this is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira, There Judah saw the daughters of a certain Canaanite, don't miss that, that'll be important later on, whose name was Shuah? He took her and he went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also." Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. And he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep... She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to name which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, "'Come, let me come in to you.' For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, "'What will you give me that you may come into me?' He answered, "'I will send you a young goat from the flock.' And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Then when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute, who was a a name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we all shall be laughed at. You see, I I sent this young goat and you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out that she, and let her be burned. And she was being, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he didn't know her again. So we saw in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, that as you follow from Abraham, you'll get to a young man named Judah who gave birth to a descendant named Perez through Tamar, who was his wife? was his daughter-in-law. Oh, it's worse than that. She was a Canaanite. I don't know if you know this or not, but God had clearly said that the Jews were not to marry any Canaanites. Go to Genesis chapter 28. Go to Genesis chapter 28 and look at what Isaac tells his son Jacob. And then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Now, Jacob was obedient. But do you know any of you know what his brother Esau did? He went and took wives from the Canaanites just to spite his father. But go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Some of you say, well, Jim, that's just Isaac telling Jacob not to marry a Canaanite. That doesn't mean that that was forbidden. Oh, the scripture says it was. Deuteronomy chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 4. God speaking through Moses, he says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So here we see again, they weren't to take wives from these other nations. God said it's wrong, don't want you to do it. Oh, by the way, why does God say that he doesn't want them to take wives from other nations? They'll lead them astray to other gods. Oh, by the way, what ended up happening? We even know anything about Solomon. At the end of his life, as wise as Solomon was, as amazing as Solomon was, at the end of his life, he had many wives, and a lot of them foreign wives, and they led him astray to other gods. The nation of Israel, if you remember from our study of uh, um, Ezekiel, that they were taken into captivity because of all the idolatry and the false gods that they had worshipped. How did it all get started? Because of disobedience, when God said, don't intermarry with these other nations, destroy them, wipe them out. I'm going to keep you remain pure for me and and devoted to me. They're going to lead you astray to other other gods, and when that happens, I'm going to have my anger torn towards you. But it's not just here in Deuteronomy 7. It's also in Joshua 23. Go to Joshua. Keep turning right. Go to the book of Joshua. Look at chapter 23, verses 1 through 13. It says, A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well-advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel... And it's elders and it's heads and it's judges and officers. And he said to them, I'm now old and well advanced in years. And you've all seen all the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it's the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I've allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain along with all the nations that I've already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the West. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand Since it's the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you." It's been repeated a few times in their history. Don't do this. Yet in our genealogy in Matthew, God uses Tamar, who was a Canaanite, to be one that he has the lineage of Jesus come through. You're going to hear something tonight a lot God uses messed up people. God uses messed up people. Oh, and you might not have noticed it because we are I'm telling you that we're focusing on the women, but this story that we just read in Genesis 38 about Judah and Tamar actually says a whole lot more about Judah. There are some things about Judah you might not have caught, so I'm gonna pull them out for you real quick. Um, Judah was a scoundrel toward his brother Joseph. Some of you may not know this. If you were to go back and look at Genesis 37, when Joseph is sent by his dad, you know, Joseph is the favorite son with the multicolored coat, is sent by his dad to go check on his brothers. Judah was the one that says, let's not kill him, let's make some money off of him and sell him. It was Judah that said that. Oh, Judah also sought the company biz- the company of and formed business partnerships with pagans. We read in the story, Hira the Adulamite, and he became best buds. He turned away from the people of Israel, became best buds, and he became a partner in business with Hiram the Adulamite when God said, don't do business with the other nations. Doesn't the Bible teach us in the church not to be unequally yoked as well? He also married a Canaanite, which was forbidden. Remember, he was the one that married Shua, the Canaanite. And then he took a Canaanite daughter for his sons. Oh, he also failed to keep his promise to Tamar. When... Because of God's displeasure with Ur, he put him to death. He goes, says to Onan, I want you to do the thing the Bible teaches that you're supposed to do. And you're to be the remember the law of leverage marriage in Deuteronomy 26, 25. He says, look, as a brother-in-law, you're to go in and provide an offspring for her. So she'll have an inheritance and someone to look after her. But Onan knew that this child would not be his. He didn't want a part of that. He had no problem sleeping with his brother's wife. Isn't that interesting? You ever think about that? Because if he was wanting to spill his seed on the ground, like the scripture said, why not just not sleep with her? No, he slept with her. But when it came time to finish the deed, he wasted his seed on the ground, the Bible said. And then God killed him for it. But Judas said, don't worry, I, I got another son and I'll give him to you, but he's not old enough yet. But Judah doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes, he just knows that these two guys have been married to this girl and they both died, he's scared to death of giving giving her his third son, and he doesn't keep his promise. Oh, there's also something else about Judah here that you might not have caught. He must have been well known for having a practice of sleeping with prostitutes because Tamar says, he's heading up there. I know what this guy's going to do. I know what kind of a guy he's like. And she dresses herself up like a prostitute and goes and sits on the side of the road where knowing that her father-in-law is going to show up. Now, I'm going to talk about that in a second because you're going to think, well, why did she do that? Actually, you're going to find out she wasn't adulterous. She wasn't wicked. You're going to find out that she's actually did something pretty neat. But he also, if you look at, it, if you follow Judah's life. He has very little to do with the God of his fathers. You don't really ever mention see Judah mentioned as following the God of his fathers very much. By the way, some of you probably have some pretty well. Uh, let's just say interesting family trees. Would you would you not agree? You're going to feel really good by the end of the night. <laughs> don't miss this either. Tamar committed no adultery. Because according to the law, if the sons didn't produce an offspring for her, who was supposed to do it? The father, Judah, who was next in line. What does Judah say when he finds out that it was his daughter-in-law who did this? She's more righteous than I. Because I didn't give her my son like I was supposed to. And so Judah sleeps with his, father, his daughter-in-law. She gets pregnant. She gives birth to Perez. And you follow that lineage through Tamar and Perez, you're going to follow it all the way to Jesus. I'm going to say this tonight, and you're going to hear it a lot. Folks, God is merciful. God is full of grace. And God uses messed up people. Let's go to the next woman in this this list here. It's in verse 5. Her name is Rahab. By the way, if you don't know this, Rahab doesn't pretend to be a prostitute. She is one. Go to to Joshua chapter 2. By the way, if you were to write a story of your family's life, would you put Tamar and Rahab in it? Probably not, would we? No, nowadays, I don't have Facebook, but I hear a lot about Facebook and everybody's putting all their best face forward on Facebook and best day ever and all that. You would never put this stuff on Facebook. But God has it in the beginning of the book of Matthew. Joshua chapter two, verses one through twenty four. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now some of you say, well, what are these two guys doing going to a prostitute's house when they go into the city? Actually, it's not a bad idea. It's pretty smart. Because if you're wanting to sneak into a city and not be found and not be caught, you go to a place where lots of strange men go in and out and people don't think anything of it. And you're going to find, as you read on in this story, they didn't go there because she was a prostitute to take part in her services. They were there to hide. Keep reading. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where their men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in in order on on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord... How the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and brother. And, sisters and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through a window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you lit us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be as on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear." she's an actual prostitute she's also a Gentile non-Jew but she fears the Lord by the way you can see from the story she feared the Lord before the men even showed up how come she feared the Lord before the two men even showed up she had heard the stories of what God had done isn't that amazing how God did these miracles in front of the Jews who got to see them, yet they turn away? Yet the nations that don't see it, but hear of it, believe it, and they're afraid? Rahab also also, uh, knows who do these two Jewish men before she's told, because she had hid them before the word from the king came to her. And that whole conversation about letting out of the window and family and all that stuff happened before She was told by the king. That whole conversation happened before. She already knew who they were, and she feared the Lord. So now we see in Matthew that, again, the genealogy not only comes through Tamar, a Canaanite who had to pretend to be a prostitute to get her father-in-law to sleep with her, to be able to carry on the lineage. He actually also brought the Messiah through an actual prostitute, From the city of Jericho, I'm going to say it to you again, guys. Ladies, God's merciful. God is full of grace. And God uses messed up people, I'm going to add something to it now, who turn to him. He uses messed up people who turn to him. Uh, Let's keep moving. we got a lot to cover. Go to the third woman mentioned in Matthew. You'll see it in verse 5. Her name is Ruth. By the way, if you don't know who Ruth is, just keep turning from Joshua to the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, chapter 1, we're going to read just verses 1 through 18, but I want to remind you of who Ruth is. It says that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, it's the land of Israel, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. By the way, what do we know about Moab? They're enemies of Israel. Keep that in mind, because I'm going to ask you something else in just a little bit about Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, again, forbidden, we've already seen it. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and me. And the Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I too am am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband, this night, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown?" Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth was from Moab, an enemy of Israel. Does anybody know how the Moabites and the the Ammonites came about? From Lot. Doing what? His daughters got him drunk after God bombed Sodom and Gomorrah and they ran up into the mountains. The daughters got him drunk and each slept with him. And the Moabites and the Ammonites came from the incestuous relationship with Lot and his two daughters. Make you feel a little better about your family tree now? Maybe you won't be so harsh on them when you get together at Thanksgiving and Christmas? But Ruth turned from her idols to the God of Naomi and God in turn chose her to be the mother of the grandfather of King David. You know the rest of the story. Boaz takes her with that law of leveret marriage and he takes her to be his wife. She gets pregnant and gives birth to a young man named Obed and Obed gave birth to Jesse and Jesse gave birth to King David we love to look at King David. Yeah, Jesus came from David, the son of David. Isn't that awesome? Oh, but how did David get here? He came through a Moabite. I'm going to say it to you again. God is merciful. God is full of grace. And God uses messed up people who turn to him. Let me just make a quick little commercial here and say, Some of you have been convinced by the enemy that because of your messed up life and some of the stuff that you've done, we don't know about. And you think, if anybody ever found out, I couldn't be used. But God knows, so I'll never be used. Let me just say something to you. Be encouraged tonight. Because if God only could use perfect people, there would be no genealogy in the book of Matthew. It would say, God, Jesus, he uses messed up people who turn to him. Oh, there's a fourth woman mentioned. Go back to Matthew and look, because I want you to see how it's worded. In Matthew chapter 1, look at verse 6. Who's the fourth woman listed in this genealogy when women aren't supposed to be mentioned in a genealogy? Oh, but does the scripture say Bathsheba? Actually, it shouldn't say Bathsheba. Because in the actual language, original language, it doesn't say Bathsheba. She's described as the wife of Uriah. Isn't that interesting? But wait a minute. Did Uriah have anything to do with this lineage? No, you're going to see. He clearly did not. And the scripture makes very clear that she did not. And I'll show you that in a second. Yet she's still listed as the wife of Uriah. Why? Why? Because Matthew's not pulling any punches and he's pointing out that God uses messed up people. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, because there's some things in this story that I can't wait to show you. Things that I had never really noticed before. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 27. We'll see the story of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. 2 Samuel 11. Look at verses 1 through 27. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman and said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and he took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Now we got to stop real quick. Why does the Bible tell us that she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness? Does anybody know what it means when it says she's been purifying herself from her uncleanness? It means what? She had just finished her cycle, and she was following the days afterwards of purification. Why does the Bible tell us that she just finished her cycle? Gross. I mean, come on. What do we got to know that for? But every word's God breathed. Why does the Bible tell us that she had just finished her cycle? It could not be Uriah's baby. And what was she not to do during the time of her purification? Have sex. The Bible is very clear here. That when David sleeps with her, don't make a mistake. It's David's baby. Isn't that amazing the stuff that's here? She says, "David, I'm pregnant." So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent to Uriah, sent Uriah to David. And Uriah, when he came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Hey, making conversation. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. In other words, go spend some time with your wife. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. And he didn't go down to his house. When they told David Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and all Israel of Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I won't do this thing. By the way, why does David want him to go sleep with his wife? Because DNA testing won't happen for 2,000 years. Because I'm not going to do that. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence, and he drank so that he made him drunk. In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he didn't go down to his house. David thought, if I get him drunk, he'll stumble home and sleep with his wife. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the, the son of Jerubbisheth? Didn't a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, But your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. So that the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had done. It's very clear, Joab knew. David wanted or Uriah dead. If he gets mad, tell him that Uriah is dead. That'll calm him down. So Dave, the messenger went and told, came and told David all that Joab said to him. Tell the messenger, sent David the men Gaden an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Don't let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. By the way, this says a lot about David. It says a little about Bathsheba. We don't really know how complicit she was in this. If you go back and look at verse 4, it says that David sent for her and she came. Now some would say, wait a minute, I mean, it's the king. If the king says you got to come, you got to come. Well, not always. You know the story of Esther. She was willing to risk her life when it came to saying no to the king or not following the king's orders. So is that where you were going to go, by the way, when you raised your hand? Or you have a question? or... What'll show you that David's a man after God's own heart is how David responds to the what he's done here. If you, we don't have time. I wrote it in my notes, but we don't have time to get there tonight. But if you'd go back and look at Psalm 51 and read the whole chapter, if it, it tells us it was written after he had sinned with Bathsheba and done all that he had done. But you're right. Here's a man after God's own heart. Yet he's still very capable of doing some very, very wicked things. Go ahead. Quick opinion of yours. I'd say a little bit of both I'd say a little bit of both but he's not perfect what's interesting again and we'll chase this rabbit for real quick because I think it's catchable but if you go and follow the story when Nathan comes and tells him the story about this guy who took the lamb that belonged to somebody else David doesn't say oh that's me he gets angry and it isn't until Nathan says you're the man By the way, I like to watch golf and people always yell out when a guy hits a tee shot. You're the man. This is the first you're the man. Not a good thing. Not a good thing. It's always surprised me that David doesn't even realize he's he's become so hard hearted at this point. Something's going on in David's life that when it's time for the kings to go out to war, he doesn't go. He stays home. Men, let me just tell you, be careful of becoming complacent in your walk with the Lord. Be careful of being alone, because even David was capable of this kind of sin. When you're alone, you're tempted to look at women who are undressed. You're tempted to do things that you wouldn't ever want anybody to ever know you did we got to be careful, because we become hard-hearted. And David had become so hard-hearted, he not only tries to get this guy to cover up his sin, he then puts him to death because he wouldn't. And then he quickly marries her, so it looks like it was his baby all along, just not way back. But God knows. Oh, and interestingly enough, let's keep going with this story. After the prophet Nathan confronts David and the child born to them dies... David and Bathsheba make another baby. Go to chapter 12 and look at verses 24 and 25. Chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, verse 24. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and he went into her, and he lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And he sent a message by Nathan the prophet, So he called his name Jedidah because of the Lord. God even sends Nathan the prophet to go tell David and Bathsheba, I like this boy. I love this boy. Most of us would say that relationship started in sin. God will never bless it. Well, how come God blessed it? Because David repented. He repented. Well, by the way, what do we know about Solomon besides the fact that he was the wisest who ever lived and the fact that at the end of his life all the foreign wives led him astray? What else do we know about Solomon? He was the one that God chose to build the temple. When King David says, I want to do it, and God says, no, you're a man of blood and you've shed a lot of blood, and that's fine because I made you good at that, but I don't want a man who shed blood building my temple. I've already chosen your son Solomon. Solomon, whose mama's Bathsheba? look at the genealogy, Jesus came from Solomon, whose mama was Bathsheba. Oh, actually, she was the wife of Uriah. Have you caught it yet? God is merciful. God is full of grace. And God uses messed up people who turn to him and repent. Now, before we look at the fifth woman in this genealogy, we'll do that next time we come together, which is Mary. We need to ask this question. Since God is full of mercy and grace, can we live however we want then? And at the last minute, turn to him for forgiveness? And can we, like Matthew and Paul, remember our sinful past and his grace and presume upon that grace since he's a God who forgives? I mean, we've been talking tonight about the fact that God uses messed up people. God's full of grace. He's full of mercy. And his mercy and his grace is demonstrated by the fact that he uses messed up people. So our thinking should be then, well, good grief. Then if I just keep messing up, God will get even more glory. So can we just, because he's merciful and because he's gracious, just live however we want And just say, Lord, it just shows your grace that you use someone as messed up as me. I'm going to give you two answers. The short answer, according to the scriptures, is no. The long answer is no. And I'm going to show you from scripture why. And I want you to listen closely. For believers, Paul deals with this issue. Go to Romans chapter 5. There's another passage in scripture where Paul says, don't use your freedom in Christ as a license for sin. Go to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 18. And we'll go over to chapter 6, verse 23. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's trespass, by the way, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Jesus' act of righteousness on the cross, leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one, man, one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. We've dealt with this before. Why did God have the law increase the trespass? Because our flesh doesn't want to be told what to do. And whenever you tell the flesh you can't do something, it wants to do it now even more. So, why did God send the law? So that we would actually realize when the, when, the, when the sin increases, maybe we'll finally acknowledge we got a problem. Because most people in the world today, if you ask them, you're a sinner? No, I'm not a sinner. I'm a pretty good person. So, the law was added so that the trespass would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin? That grace may abound. In other words, if God's grace always will supersede man's sin. Then I think a great way to get more grace is to sin more. Shall we do that? And this is what Paul says. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, let me paraphrase and then it'll explain as we keep reading. Paul says, look, if you're even thinking that way, you totally don't get it. You're still looking at sin. We have been set free from sin. We're no longer under law. we have now under grace. Our focus should be on the grace and actually living in that wonderful joy of a right relationship with God. Too many Christians are still focusing on sin. How am I doing? Am I sinning? Am I not sinning? No, the focus should be on our new life. We were baptized into his death. The old man is gone. We're a new creation. We should be just focusing on that. Paul said, even in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, I don't even judge myself. I don't sit around seeing how well I'm doing. I don't focus on my sin or not sin. I focus on Christ. And what he's saying is this. If you think that way, you might not be saved. Because those who are truly born again, we don't think about how we can sin more. We think about how we can walk with the Lord closer. We're in a new relationship. That's where our focus is. So by no means. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in in a resurrection like his. we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't focus on how am I sinning or not sinning, which, by the way, is what I did as a new believer, and a young believer for many, many years. I spent so much time looking at my sin until I finally realized God's not looking at my sin. He's already separated my sin. He wants me to focus on my new relationship. And when I started to focus on my new relationship, that whole struggle with sin, it wasn't my focus anymore. My focus was on Him, and victory over sin started to happen. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Don't present your body parts to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members or your body parts to God as instruments for righteousness. Do you see it? Where should your focus be if you're a believer in Christ? Should it be on sinning or not sinning? Or should it be on your new relationship with Christ? That's all you should be focusing on. You shouldn't even be focusing on sin. Then he goes on and says, for sin won't have dominion over you because you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? There he goes again. By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, whether a sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin having have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once present, once you just as you once presented your members or body parts as slaves to impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your body parts as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of the payment for sin is death, but the free gift of of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the question is, for a believer, shall we just sin more so that God's grace will be demonstrated because He uses messed up people and He's merciful and He's gracious? Paul says, if you even think that way, you might not understand your salvation, or you might not even have it. How can we even think about that? We've been set free from that. Our focus now should be on the new life that we have in Christ. And I want to challenge you, if you still struggle with sin, which we all still do, don't focus on getting better at not sinning. Your focus is the sinning. Focus on your new life with Christ and believing what he said about who you are in him. By the way, I wish you could be on the cruise because when we get to our first message on the the book of Romans chapter eight, when he talks about there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, we're going to spend a whole message just dealing with that topic. The depth of what it means to be in Christ. Go ahead. I think one of the schemes of the devil is to have the believers think about their sins and the non-believers not think about theirs. I think you've nailed it. Did you hear what James said? He says this one of the schemes of the devil is to have believers think about their sins and the non-believers not think about their sins. You have been already set free from that whole sin thing. We'll get into that in the cruise, but... You've already been set free from that whole sin thing. So why would you even think about sinning? We're supposed to be thinking about, well, doesn't St. Colossians chapter 3, since we've been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above? We're focusing on that. But Do I still sin? Yes. And when I do, the Spirit of God convicts, and, and, and I confess, and I just say, you're right, and I, so I thank him for the fact that he's washed me of it. But you know what? I don't spend a whole lot of time there because I'm focusing on the new relationship. Now, for unbelievers, go to Romans chapter 2. Go to Romans chapter 2. He's been laying out in chapter 1, and, and he's getting into chapter 2. How Everybody's guilty, Jew and Gentile before God. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, chapter 2, verse 1 of Romans. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, that every, uh, o man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and His forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. One of the things that unbelievers do is they love to point out how all these other people are doing all this stuff. And he says to them, Look, don't you realize that you do the same stuff? Can anybody show me a person in the Bible who was considered righteous because of Christ who didn't do any of this stuff? I mean, Abraham. He lied. A couple of times, David did what we, Solomon, we could go on and on. Folks, there's nobody that is righteous. It's only by his grace. But for the lost person who's out there, look at how good I am because of how bad everybody else is. God says, you're missing two things. One, don't you realize that God's patience towards you and his kindness to you was to lead you to repentance? Oh, don't miss the second thing. Every day you presume upon his grace and his mercy, you're just storing up more wrath for that day when his wrath is going to come. Folks, don't miss this. Hell's eternal, and there's levels of punishment in hell. Some people will suffer more for eternity than others will all suffer. All those who are apart from Christ, all are not covered by the blood of Christ through faith, will suffer for eternity. But there the Bible is very very clear, there's levels of punishment in hell. By the way, I'm going to remind you of some people from the stories we read tonight. We'll see if you how would not you had reading comprehension, okay? Your SAT or uh, whatever the other one is called is going to happen right now. A-C-T. ACT. I didn't take that one, that's why I didn't I don't fear it anymore. But uh, do you remember a man named Ur? Does anybody know who Ur is? And <laughs> not Ur the Chaldeans. I'm talking from our story that we read. To, stories we read tonight. He was who? The son of Judah, the firstborn son of Judah. What happened to Ur? But why? What is the What did the Bible say happened to Ur? He was wicked, and God killed him. Sounds like there came a day when. Earth's time was up. It's too late. Onan? Y'all know who Onan is. What happened to him? Oh, he didn't just die. What did the scripture say? God killed him. By the way, have you ever heard of Elimelech? Does anybody know who Elimelech was from our story? Who was Elimelech? He was Naomi's husband. By the way, do y'all know what Elimelech did? God was disciplining Israel because of their sin by bringing a famine. But instead of staying there in obedience to God's word and just finishing the discipline, he walked in disobedience and went to an enemy nation which was forbidden and sought his provision from the enemy instead of the Lord. Well, it doesn't look like God's taking care of me, so I'm going to do this. I know God says that I'm not supposed to do these things, but you know what? He wasn't doing a good enough job, so I had to do this. By the way, what happened to Elimelech? God killed him. As you read in that story, it's pretty clear. Because of his sin. By the way, he gave birth to a couple of boys, though, and one was called Malon, the other one was called Kilion. You think it's any accident that both of them died, too? Now, these aren't from our stories, but you know these names pretty well. Ananias, Sapphira, I actually believe they were believers. God took them home early. You do know, believers, if you walk in persistent sin, the Bible says there is a sin unto death. There is such a thing, and I'll get right to you. There is such a thing as the Lord saying, Look, I know your story, I've seen the whole how it all ends. You're not going to rec- accrue any more reward. And you're doing more damage down here than you're doing good. Yeah, you'll get to heaven, but I'm gonna take you home early. You're gonna you're gonna die. There is a sin unto death for believers. Yes, ma'am. Neat that he would give glory to God. That's awesome. Anybody know who Achan is? It's an Old Testament story. A man named Achan. Oh, yeah. He stole some stuff, right? I'm sorry? Oh, yeah. He stole some stuff. Remember when the nation of Israel was going to Jericho? God said, This first city is to be devoted to the Lord. Everything goes to the Lord. Nobody takes any of the spoil. Achan hid some stuff. What ended up happening to him and his whole family? They were put to death. God will give mercy and grace to those who turn to him, but he has every right to judge and destroy all the wicked at any time he chooses. He has every right. He had every right to take you, take your life before you came to faith. Go for it. i believe the the answer to that question is definitely yes because the all through the scriptures god is a god of mercy and god of grace and he points out our sin but when we t- tune it out achan definitely knew he was doing wrong because it had been very clearly spelled out don't take any of this stuff everybody knew it Satan can't when we sin. Mm-hmm. he can delude us into thinking but deep down mm-hmm. We Right. But deep down, I believe the Bible shows that he writes it on our hearts as well. We, we know deep down it wasn't right. We can convince ourselves that it wasn't, but that's a really good question. But I think the Bible's very, very clear. God's not going to say, oop, you stepped over that line. I didn't want you to step over that line. You're dead. He'll give you opportunity to repent. But he gets to determine how long that opportunity is. So I say to you all, and I'll get right to you, turn to him. He's a God of mercy and full of grace. He uses messed up people. Don't presume upon it. Go ahead. Why is Jesus included in this genealogy? I can understand Joseph. I could also probably understand James's brother. But Jesus is the son of God. Mm -hmm. And if you were to do a DNA of his blood, (laughs) it wouldn't show up. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's a great commercial for when we come back. Because here's why. You're going to see. That the genealogy in Matthew's genealogy goes through Joseph's side, but Luke's genealogy goes through Mary's side. And it's a great point because actually there's also something else too that a lot of people don't know. There was a man named Jeconiah, and we'll get to it. We're going to dive into all this stuff. It's just a quick commercial. I'm going to let you go. But Jeconiah was cursed by God that none of his descendants would ever sit on the throne of Israel. Yet Jeconiah is in this lineage, and it traces to Joseph. Further evidence of the fact that Jesus was not from Joseph, but was from God and Mary. Because if Jesus was actually from Joseph, he legally could not sit on the throne of Israel ever because Jeconiah was cursed by God. None of your descendants will ever sit. And the fact that they're bringing out Joseph, we'll get into all of that, but you're right. If you traced his DNA, you wouldn't find Tamar. You wouldn't find Rahab. You wouldn't find that, but you would find Joseph. Not Jesus is DNA through Joseph, but that's very important. We're going to deal with all that. We're going to deal with the fact that if you do the math, try to find 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Go ahead and count it on your own. We're going to deal with a whole lot of stuff. Like I said, there's a lot here. Great question. It will be dealt with in the weeks to come. Not next week. See you in two weeks. I love you guys. Good night.